The following audio is from Christ Presbyterian Church in Nashville, Tennessee, where our mission is to follow Christ and His mission of loving people, places, and things to life. For more information about Christ Presbyterian Church, please visit ChristPres.org. And our scripture reading for today is from Isaiah 9, verses 1 through 7. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them light has shone. You have multiplied the nation. You have increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. For the yoke of his burden and the staff for his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. For every boot of the tramping warrior in battle tumult and every garment rolled in blood will be burned as fuel for the fire. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom, to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness. From this time forth and forevermore, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. This is the word of the Lord. Praise be to God. Well, as Ben takes a moment to step off stage, I want to welcome you again. My name is Stacy Croft. I'm the pastor here uh, at CPC Music Row, and I'm so glad to be with you. And uh, just want to thank you. Um, thank you for a, a number of things, but particularly for your generosity over this last uh, year, 2020. Um, we have continued as uh, what's been beautiful in the midst of what seems like such uh, disarray and um, a discombobulation with the pandemic and everything, uh, you all have generously continued to give. And again, just so you know, you're, um, the way that you give to Christ Pres is not just to keep the lights on in these kind of places, but it actually has been to support so many different uh, ministry partners that we support. Uh, people who are around not only in this city, but in the United States and even beyond uh, with needs that they've had, things even uh, given to the wildfires in California, to, to our partners there, to even people here still in devastation in East Nashville from the t- tornado relief, and even things in our own uh, CPC community, our own Music Row, as well as wider Christ Pres community of people who have been impacted by COVID, whether they've lost jobs, whether they have uh, not been able to do anything because of illness or staying at home, uh, bringing meals, those kind of things. It, it, it has been wonderful to see how you have uh, leaned in with both your uh, monetary fiduciary uh, kindness as well as your lives. And uh, we encourage you to continue, please. Uh, as that happens. We're, we're not out of that. Um, we want to continue to care for one another in that way. And thank you for being so generous um, over this last year. Well, I want to say, uh, as I begin and we look at <clears throat> the, this passage, um, I've been able to do, I mentioned this before, I've been able to do a, a number of weddings that 
One time, though, we had some friends um, here in town. This is some time ago. We were at the, actually at the Hermitage Hotel. And there was, a, we were sitting there. We, we decided they were in town from, out, they were, you know, from uh, another city. And we wanted to go, you know, hey, what are we going to do? Let's go downtown and uh, let's have a drink at the Hermitage Hotel and just enjoy and see kind of the history and enjoy downtown a little bit. And we're sitting in the lobby where, I don't know if you've been there before, I don't know if now's the time to do that, but you should do that at some point. It's a great, it's a really beautiful place. And we were enjoying that. Well, all of a sudden we heard some music and um, it was a song that we realized that over in the, uh, across the way from where we're sitting, we're it was a big ballroom and the doors would open and you hear the music just flood out. And all of a sudden comes one of my wife's favorite songs, my first, my last, my everything, Barry White, right? You, you can't beat that voice. And uh, it just comes, the doors open and it's just as loud and then it closes and it's kind of muted. And she kind of says, I need to go check this out. What's going on in there? Um, <clears throat> and so she gets up and she walks over to the doors. We're all still sitting there with our drinks, enjoying our, our time together. And I'm just watching and she opens the door, leans in, and all of a sudden I see her disappear into this whatever room. And I'm thinking, okay, well, maybe she's just looking around. She doesn't come back for a little while. So I go over to the door and I open it up and again, the music just floods out to me. And I look in and it's a reception and people are around. I just kind of peel around the corner and there on the dance floor is the bride and all of, you know, this wedding party. And right next to the bride dancing is my wife. Uh, this is one of the things I love about her. And, and what was incredible is she, apparently uh, she went in and she said, and she, she peered around the corner and no one was dancing. It was just kind of one of these, you know, receptions. Everybody was just standing around. And she went over... <laughs> got the bride and began to dance on the floor. And they were, when I looked, when I peered in, there was a lot of dancing going on. It looked like nothing had stopped or it, I ha- would have not known that there was no party going on until then. And one of the things that was so beautiful about that is just seeing not only that she uh, arrived, like she broke into this thing, and kind of, but, but she didn't just kind of move into it to to watch, she brought, went into it and brought the party. <laughs> she brought the joy. She brought enjoyment and beauty and dancing. And, and, and when we look at this passage, and it says, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. There's actually th- this, this language behind that, meaning there's a breaking in. This is what we say when we say Advent means an arrival. It means there's a breaking in, a breaking through. The arrival isn't one that just comes and is just static or observant. The arrival of Christmas actually brings in life. It brings in joy. He comes, what, as we've been singing over, and don't you love singing Christmas songs? Uh, I mean, and especially now, for some reason, they just strike deeper because we need an arrival. We need to know that he doesn't just come once a year in this static kind of time. He comes to actually make his blessings known. Far as the curse is found, far as the curse that has settled everything into just darkness and difficulty, he has gone over and abundantly 
to bring the party and the joy in his life to us who were not dancing (laughs) or struggling to let us know that he comes into that. That's what this passage is about. That's what Advent is. That's what Christmas is. We've been in Isaiah and we're kind of hitting, getting to the end of it. Next week will be our final part of Isaiah. And one of the things I've loved about going through Isaiah is just the consistent pattern of anticipation. One of the greatest things about Christmas is, isn't just Christmas Day, it's the anticipation of it, right? Isaiah is this constant anticipation that just draws you out. And that's what we should be doing. It should cause us to kind of come up on our toes and say, when is it going to happen? Where's it going to be? You see that even in the accounts of Jesus' birth when people are looking, where's Jesus? Where's he going to be? When will he arrive? There's this deep anticipation because it strikes deep at our need, our heart. And if there's any moment in history, any moment like this one, the Advent Christmas itself is one that breaks into time and space to actually teach us what is life, what is joy, what is relationship, what does it really mean for us to be in relationship with God and others? What does that really mean? There's a supernatural thing happening here. There's something greater. It's not just natural, it's supernatural that calls us out of the grounded nature that we're in, right? Heaven and nature sings. Why do we sing these songs? To lift us out. So we're gonna look at this passage and ask kind of two questions. First is how he breaks through. How does, how does he break through? How does he arrive, right? How does this one arrive? What's the anticipation here? But secondly, we're gonna say who? We're gonna ask who breaks through. And you may at first go, yeah, Jesus, but I really wanna ask who? How do we know it's him? How do we identify this one who comes? So, so how he breaks through and then who actually breaks through and comes. You know, uh, <clears throat> as the passage begins, it talks about gloom, it talks about darkness, it talks about seeing a great light. It says in verse one, but there will be no gloom for who Uh, her who was in anguish. Verse two, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who have dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. You know, if there's anything else that's going on right now, it's uh, SAD, seasonal affective disorder. Uh, You know, it happens every year. One of my least favorite things, I love nearly everything about living in Nashville with the exception of at this time of year, it gets dark at 4.30 in the afternoon, and you kind of feel like, what just happened? So then when it's about 7 or 8 o'clock, you feel like it's 11, <laughs> because it's been dark for so long. And it's, you know, if any of you have dealt with SAD, seasonal affective disorder, uh, many of us probably uh, deal with it just regularly. It, it comes with a lot of things. Some of us, it may strike more deeply. Uh, it affects your mood, right? It affects the way that you feel about that. You kind of, kind of walk around. Sometimes, it's, you know, just the grayness, it just drags you down. Sometimes it actually affects your appetite. Sometimes you don't want to eat. You, or maybe you eat more. It's just my problem. I intend to uh, emotionally eat. <laughs> I'm like, okay, I'll just eat more. That'll solve it. Um, <clears throat> or you feel other things. Behavioral inability, kind of social isolation. You feel this just... Uh, everything is just too much right now. But a lot of people say, and if you look it up, 
uh, some of the therapeutic ways to actually help seasonal affective disorder. It, they talk about getting what your body needs, your physical skin needs vitamin D. And a lot of people now have, and you may have this, one of those lights, a vitamin D light, you can just stick on your desk or you put it on your nightstand and when you wake up, some people just turn it on immediately so they can just like stick their face next to it. And it's supposed to actually give your body physical like nutrients that help internally with all the other things. And it's, just, it's not just a, a subjective, oh, seasonal affective disorder. It's just kind of depressing, you know, no, no, no. It actually impacts you objectively, doesn't it? Like your whole body does. And I think when we read passages like this, we read the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And we sing songs about light. And we, we light an advent candle. And there's a reason we do that we sometimes can take it and put it in the subjective and think that Jesus is just helping us feel better. There's something about Christmas that's just to come in and make us feel the warmth, right? And, uh, and feel emotionally better. And yes, it should encourage us, but there's actually something far deeper than that. It's an objective work of God. There's actually a tangible fleshliness happening here. That when the light comes, it's not a light, just like a light bulb that turns on that so you can see. It's actually a deep, penetrating revelation into a heart that's been walking in darkness. When it talks about no gloom and walking in darkness, it's not just saying like they've been going like this, looking for the door. It means that their whole life has been enraptured by just heavy darkness. A darkness that you see often, and sometimes you don't want to see, that's actually in you and around you. It's the moments why we have in newspaper feeds, they go, okay, let's talk about good news today. Because <laughs> it does seem like when you look at article after article, or you're watching TV, the sky is constantly falling. Everything's dark. And it doesn't take long for you to look, and sometimes we don't want to see, and sometimes we may even ask or say to ourselves, oh, it's really not that dark in here. I mean, it's kinda, I'm kind of good. I mean, I'm, I'm not all bad. Well, okay. But the point isn't whether you're all bad or all good. It's the fact that you and I live in darkness. That's the point of this passage. The people who walked in darkness, they've been living in it. It's something that strikes the very heart of what God has to do objectively to get to us. To come to the places where the deepest, most fearful things about ourselves and about this world are true. The questions of, of, of the secrets we keep that we're so afraid, they're so dark that we, even the closest person, possibly even a spouse or a friend or a roommate or parent, if we had asked the question, if we revealed any sort of light on it, the, the light on that would frighten us to death because it's so dark to us. So darkness in us or we see around us that is so weighty. You know, I talked a minute ago about being ministry partners and the way that our church moves into the city to love and our, our mission of Christ Presbyterian Church is to love people, places, and things to life. And the reason we say that is because life doesn't just come to people, it comes to places and things. And oftentimes we see the darkness affecting not just us, but we see it affecting the places the things, things around us that we think, oh man, if it just worked this way, if I just saw my job this way, if I just felt this way about the, we see the darkness 
And sometimes we want to hide it. Sometimes we want to hide the dark parts of our city even that are around us, things going on around us that are so heinous and horrible and sad, whether it be poverty, whether it be sex trafficking, whether it be things that are so deeply embedded around us, and yet what we want to see is the nice new things that are going up, but there's something always behind it. What comes into that space? How does God address that? He addresses it by being light. C.S. Lewis and his uh, Chronicles of Narnia, if you've ever heard of C.S. Lewis, he's an author, has written uh, a great uh, series of books called The Chronicles of Narnia. And one of those is called The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe, within probably one of his most famous ones. And in that is uh, a, a scene where winter is going on, and it's this winter without Christmas. And the lead characters even run into Santa Claus in the story and, and talk to him and say, he's finally coming back and winter's going to recede because Aslan is on the move. But you can feel, you can feel that juxtaposition. You can feel that, 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 that anticipation, that difficulty. That's where they are. It is this, imagine the darkness consistent. And until there's an arrival that, that dawn doesn't break. And they're looking for it. They're walking in darkness because it has surrounded them. And yet that's what it means. What he, how he breaks in, he breaks in by going to the deepest parts of where we find the darkness, even to death itself. It, it is a curious thing to ask, why in the world does Jesus have to become man? I remember my days uh, across the street at Vanderbilt when I was a, a campus minister and a chaplain there. And being a chaplain, I was able to be a part of a, a larger, broader spectrum of religions and ideas. And I actually really enjoyed that. I'm, I uh, miss some of my friends over there in our discussions. <clears throat> One of the things that we talked about, I, I recall, was the commonality of uh, our, you know, our religions across the board. And one of those things was light that light is a common theme in religious circles. There's light and darkness, good and bad, these kind of things. Constantly, though, that's the discussion. But one of the, the differentiations of Christianity and what Christianity actually brings into that, and yes, there are great bridges, great discussions to have about the light and darkness and what religion brings to, to beat away darkness, but how is the darkness actually addressed? That's where all of these things begin to differ. And one of the most profound things to me is how God decides to actually address the darkness. And he does so not by sending a word, not by infiltrating um, uh, with philosophy or our way of giving back or our way of working in or the Christmas spirit. He does so by actually wrapping himself in the same flesh we have to experience the darkness, to be born into it. I mean, think about the darkness that Jesus was surrounded with, even within his birth. Even in his birth, his parents had to be on the run for him to be born in safety because his life was even threatened as he was even being born. Because there was an edict, the one we read all the time in sweet lessons and carols, and we'll do this this, uh, this week, on the 24th, we'll read about it. And there was an edict that went out that all the, the children would be killed. But that's, that's a huge thing. Think about that. 
the darkness that is around him. And yet this is how God chooses to address our darkness, is to be born up within it so that he can become the light that grows. This is why the Advent candle does what it does. That's why we light a candle each week and then at the end, and then of course usually, and what I love, and I'll miss this uh, Christmas Eve, where we'll do it all together at, at Old Hickory, is when we turn off all the lights and all of us have our little candles. You know that, everybody loves that part. That's like, that's like the favorite part. Whether it's electric or you're like, you have the one with wax, you don't want to burn your hand but it just lights the room. Everything turns off and lights come on. Why is that? Something has to break into that. That's the picture of it. It's the tangible reality of what Jesus does. See, he brings that light. And then verse three, he doesn't just bring the light. He brings abundance. It says, you've multiplied the nation. You've increased its joy. They rejoice before you as with joy at the harvest, as they are glad when they divide the spoil. What in the world? Israel has been taken captive by Assyria, a, a oppressive superpower nation that has been more than aggressive and, uh, you know, uh, to stamp out Israel itself. <clears throat> but to read this, to you've multiplied the nation, increased its joy, joy at the harvest, this just overabundance. What, what's happening here? If you read the prophetic literature, any prophet, Isaiah is a prophet, it's a large prophetic book, but any of the prophetic books, large or small, they constantly bring up this overabundance. It could be overabundance of grain. It could be overabundance of, of joy. It could be uh, multiplied by the nation. There's this overabundance out of loss. And if there's anything I think of, and I, I don't know why it keeps coming up, but, but every time I go to the store, I was looking in my phone at pictures, and I had taken a picture of when the pandemic began, and I just took a picture of the um, paper aisle, paper towels, toilet paper, everything, clean shelves. And most of us don't hit that place of need like that. I don't know if any of you hit that during this season where you kind of just, for the first time, really kind of felt loss. There wasn't an abundance of anything in there. And every time you went back to the store, you were like, when are they gonna have this or that? There's constant signs saying, please take one in respect of other people, or please take only two. But there was a moment when we hit, when we were in between trying to get enough of something, and I thought, how do I handle this? This is relatively small in terms of the loss of what so many have felt. Some people haven't just lost paper towels, they've lost lives. Some people have lost jobs. Some people have lost homes. Some people have lost friendships. There's been loss in this. And th what they're talking about here in this, Israel has been faced with profound loss. They not only see the darkness within them, the oppression of the nation around them has removed everything off the shelf. It wasn't just an overabundance of need and um, you know, supply and demand. It was, you have no supply. We will give you none. What comes into that? And this is what the, what, how he breaks it. He says, I'm gonna bring an abundance, a multiplication of that. So much so, isn't it true? It's when we feel our need of something, right? 
like paper towels or whatever it may be. Maybe something small that we say. It feels pressure and you feel a little bit of anxiety and you see the shelves lined and you say, how am I gonna be taken care of? But what this passage is saying is the opposite, is that you feel your needs so much, not by what you lack, but by so being overabundant that you're very much faced with your need. It's almost like going to a dinner. (laughs) I was able to celebrate a birthday with uh, some friends and they were kind enough to uh, pay for our meal, but it was so beautiful to say, they just ordered and ordered and things came out and there's, so much so beautiful tasting rich foods that you just almost can't take it all in. It almost, you have to stop in between bites because you have to make sure that you're savoring it. And you may not even be able to finish in ways that sometimes we just gobble it up. But it just kept coming. And it's an overabundance that you're so, then have you ever been in that place where you're so aware of your need because it's been supplied so much? that the gratitude overwhelms you. This is what he's breaking in to bring. This is how he overwhelms them with the light. And he mentions this weird name in verse four. He says, for the yoke of his burden and his staff on his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian, this Midian, this word. He's, and this is what Isaiah does often. He gives us a lesson of the Old Testament. He'll hearken back to a word or a phrase, whether it be the Exodus, the people being brought out of Egypt, or anything else, or Abraham at the very beginning. Midian was a place where there was a weak army of God in in Judges chapter six. In the day of Midian, Gideon, this warrior named Gideon, who was very weak and very small. In fact, when God came to him and said, you are going to defeat a seven-year oppressor on Israel. I'm gonna call you out. His first question was, are you kidding? I'm the weakest and I'm actually from the weakest tribe of Israel and you think I'm gonna do this? God, what are you wanting to do? What's your game here? But isn't that what goes back to Christmas? How does God break through? He breaks through in the weakest of means. He puts himself so low in position that when he's born, he makes himself breakable. He has to be carried by his own parents to flee from death. He has to be fed. He has to be nurtured. He has to be, God puts himself in a position of weakness to bring strength. He has to come in that position because all of us hate our weakness. The thing we don't want to see the most when it comes to the gospel, the good news of Christianity and why it's so distinct is that it is through weakness comes strength. It's into the darkness comes the light. It's from loss and lack comes the overabundance. Why is it that we sing, and we will sing it soon, joy to the world, far as the curse is found, So much further is that grace and that overabundance. Why is that? How can he do that? Only if he goes into those things. And who is it that does it? The question is, who is it? It, Well, okay, you could say Jesus, but how do we know this? Because he begins by saying, "For us, to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulders, and the name, his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, and Prince of Peace. Now, those are incredible titles. 
If there are names in the Bible, particularly in Isaiah, Isaiah draws out a lot of names and a lot of titles. But if you read into these and you kind of pick it out, this is something not just natural, but supernatural. There's something huge here happening. And I don't know if we talk much about that. We don't say supernatural much because if you do, you're kind of like, it's kind of a weird word. You know, you don't really talk about God in the supernatural. Maybe you do, but you don't say it in public because if you do, maybe you get some weird reactions. Because supernatural is really what's happening. They need something that enters into nature, but is beyond it. There's one who is coming that is that. The anticipation of someone that can actually take everything that we experience and be above it supernaturally. Joni Erickson Tata, who's, um, if you've read anything from her or heard that name, she's an incredible author, speaker, artist. She, uh, when she was younger, dove into a shallow end of a pool, uh, and not a swimming pool, but into the ocean, and uh, it broke her back, and she became a quadriplegic. One of the things she talks about in, is, is in her life, what does Christianity mean to her, particularly Christmas? How does the anticipation of what really God arriving looks like to someone? And particularly for her, thinking she hopes that when God comes, not that, and everyone would say, not that she would have a new body necessarily, but she would see the Lord who gave her that one, is what she says. Listen to how she talks about Christmas. Christmas is an invitation to a celebration yet to happen. And if, you, if you've got a Christmas longing, you're about to be satisfied too. Just hold on and say with me, come Lord. Come Lord Jesus. That's what Christmas is. It's a crying out from those things to the one who is going to come. And you know, <clears throat> I find embedded in this such amazing things that, that connect because it begins with these weird words that poor Jordan asked me. She said, how do you pronounce Zebulun and Naphtali, you know? It's kind of like, is this Italy, Naphtali? Like, what is this? It says, in the former time, he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun and Naphtali, but in the latter time, he made glorious, has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations. What in the world's going on there? The first two places to fall to the Assyrians were Zebulun and Naphtali. And in Matthew, when it very... When he begins his ministry, Jesus literally comes out of being baptized. And it says this, now when he heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee and um, leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan of Galilee, the Gentiles, the people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. What is Jesus doing there? He is bringing the gospel, the good news to bear in the first place to fall who has experienced the darkness to say, the first place I'm going to preach the good news of the gospel and bring myself to is this place. 
He begins to put himself in that position. You see the language even in verse four, for the yoke of his burden, the staff of his shoulder, the rod of the oppressor, you have broken as on the day of Midian. Where to yoke? And that comes from Old Testament language of oppression. But what does Jesus come to say? Why does he say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light? Who is the one who breaks into this place into the darkness to give us that? Because we feel the oppression. We know the oppression. The oppression, not just of the emotion that we feel, but the objective oppression of actually even death itself. Who comes into that? Say, my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus takes this on himself to show us what is true rest. That he is the the one who rules for to us a child is born to us a son is given and the government shall be upon his shoulders what in the world does that mean you know one of the things I'm always fascinated with and and you might be too is at the end of a presidential term you always see the photographs of the one who is in office and you see kind of the before and after photos and often you think is this what happens to me under stress and you see the What was not gray has turned gray and what was not wrinkled has far more wrinkles and furrowed brows and and you see that what the rule and strain of government upon their shoulders has been. What this passage is saying is saying the government and full weight of the world will be on his shoulders and yet you will not see a gray hair or a line. His rule is not affected by that way. In fact, it says... In Colossians, Paul says, let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts to which you are indeed called by one body. But the the condition that he brings is reconciliation. What brings the lines onto Jesus' face isn't his rule. It's by willingly being the one who takes on those things for reconciliation. We sang at the very beginning, Hark the Herald Angels Sing, as I've said that I've loved doing this Christmas season is really researching the hymns and, and history. And with that hymn, when Charles Wesley, or John Wesley rather, with his brother wrote that, it actually was written as a poem as so many of these songs began. And he connected it to his conversion, his becoming a Christian. And the first few lines are just strange in the original. It says, hark the welkin, it doesn't even say hark the herald angels sing. It says, um, hark the welkin rings. It's like something from Middle Earth. I mean, what is, what is he talking about? And, it, and there's readings of how George Whitfield and others went in and helped him change that. So that when we read and we sing the song, you can actually see it. You can, if you do the research, you can find the ancient kind of tapestry of it and the markings through it. But what he was wanting to touch, he was wanting to write a song about how the angels are singing out about his coming to connection with the Lord Jesus. And there's a line in there that says this. It says, God and sinners reconciled. That God himself has taken it on to reconcile those of us who were not near him to be with him. That's what this table means. This table is is a tangible evidence of reconciliation. Another word that we probably wouldn't use much. Or, uh, reconciliation is a word that's like, it means 
Gosh, if you're really, and I would say in our culture, you don't use reconciliation unless you really have a real rift. Maybe a family member, maybe a friend. But that's the real truth behind it, that that God and sinners were not reconciled. That in the darkness we have been, in without light, we have been in loss and in lack. We have experienced it. And yet the tangible reality of what God has done is to come. And what does he say in John chapter eight, verse 12? He says this, I am the light of the world. He doesn't just bring light. He says, I am the light. Because it is in and through Jesus himself that we are actually reconciled with God. The light isn't an an enlightenment of knowledge. It's actually a revelatory picture of here is God. It's to say, I am the light of the world. Look to me and you will see salvation. Not hidden, right? Because then he says to us, you are light. Paul says later, you're children of light. How can we be light? Only if we know the light of the world that says here through this table that sin is real. Darkness is true. We talk about death. This table actually is a table. That's what communion is. It's actually talking about death. But it also is talking about reconciliation. It's talking about friendship renewed, relationship rekindled. It's talking about the way that we come together again with God isn't because we can do it really well. It's not a pep talk of being warm again at Christmas. It's the breaking through into our darkness so that he can bring us the deepest love we've ever known through this body and blood. Let's stand together.